the Last Supper. You can find it on page 1057 if you'd like to follow. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's, uh, it's always nice to get an invitation back. That's hopefully a good sign. So uh, great to be with you today. Now, I wonder, are there any foodies with us this morning? Who loves eating out, Simon? Okay, a few of you raising your hands. Well, um, a few months back, I went to a Michelin star restaurant. I've got to say, for me, that is a rare moment. Most of my eating out happens in McDonald's, KFC, Nando's, and if I'm really lucky, Wagamama's or Pizza Express, such as the, the palate of my children and also my budget. But here I was, this was a fine dining experience. It was amazing. Four courses, you know, exquisitely presented. And then as I started eating, it was like entering food heaven. It was amazing. And for those of you who love food, this is a place which not only is a restaurant, it's a hotel. And you can go for a food staycation. It's that kind of place. And in fact, the chef was a former winner of MasterChef The Professional. So, you know, this was, this was amazing. Even better, even better, I didn't pay for it. A friend took me. It was definitely a meal that I remember for a long time. The price was paid by someone else. The cost was covered. And today we've read, haven't we, in Luke 22, about a meal, a meal of the utmost importance, and dare I say, perhaps the most important meal ever to have been held, one that was paid in full, the cost covered by the Lord Jesus 
As Jesus broke bread and poured the wine at the Last Supper, this meal, of course, inaugurated a practice that Christians down the centuries, down the ages, across the time zones, cultures, and nations practice to this day. And it is communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. And as we look at this passage in Luke 22, the time and place of this meal, this moment, is no accident, is it? It's absolutely intentional. At the start in verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. It's Jewish Passover. We're in Jerusalem. And of course, and still to this day, Jews remember the rescue, don't they, and delivery from from slavery in Egypt way back in the Old Testament. And just hours later in in Luke 23, we will read that literally Jesus' body and blood was broken and shed. Jesus becomes the perfect, ultimate Passover lamb. Ushering in, of course, a new covenant. No longer do we live under that system of ritual and sacrifice. We live under grace, and it's all because of Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves us from spiritual death and spiritual slavery. And so this is a meal for us to savor, a meal for us to remember. We remember, don't we, in communion, in this moment, we remember the depths that Jesus plummeted to, plummeted to in dying covering our sin and shame. And then we remember his victory, because there is an empty grave, and that's the great hope of being a Christian, isn't it? That Jesus has the power to save and rescue, and in him we become fully alive. We watched a video there that highlights the fact that Christians around the world today, many Christians, do not have the same freedom that we do. There are Christians around the world who will never enter a physical church building such as this. They are part of secret churches. They meet perhaps in the middle of the night at dawn. They'll be meeting today or they will have met today or their meeting will come later on today. They will worship in whispers and in silence. They'll meet in urban settings. They'll meet in rural locations. They'll meet in barns, fields, offices, factories. They will meet in restaurants, park benches, and even prisons. And as they meet, they'll remember the significance of this meal, this moment. They might not actually take communion together because of risk and cost, but they remember the preciousness of this moment, this meal. When they do take communion together, and if they do have the opportunity, they might not use bread and wine. It sounds a bit bit different, doesn't it, really? And I'll just quickly share with you some of the items that they might use in taking communion. They might use crackers, crackers for communion. They might use biscuits. And even cake. We know of believers in places like Southeast Asia where there's so much restriction and difficulty that they're in a restaurant, they're having a party, and it seems like it's a birthday party, but actually they're taking a moment to remember the blood and body of Jesus that was broken and shed for them. Might just use squash or grape juice, whatever they can find. And then they might use grapes, and I'll explain a bit more about the grapes in a moment. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter, does it, what you use. I think it's the heart posture, the the real meaning behind it. I've got a couple of points I want to draw out for us this morning to highlight for us about this meal, about communion, about this supper, this meal that Jesus inaugurated. And the first is this, that actually in communion, at the last supper, in this meal, we remember Jesus. We remember Jesus 
and we meet with him too. We remember Jesus and we meet with him too. Jesus said in verse 19 and 20, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is a new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Breaking bread, sharing the wine, or whatever substitutions that our brothers and sisters use around the world reminds us that there's only one who delivers us from sin and the mess that we're tainted with. There is only one who can set us right. And we remember that all of us, as Romans says, we've all fallen short of God's standards. We are all in need of rescue. And the remarkable thing about the gospel of Jesus is that we're all invited, aren't we, to this table? We're all invited to this table. Jesus really does say, come dine with me, come dine with me. And if anyone is here today who is not yet a Christian, the invitation is open to you. Such is the generosity and kindness of Jesus. So you might be wondering about the grapes. Well, in Central Asia and places like Afghanistan, Christians don't use bread and wine, they use the grape. And I love the symbolism of this, actually. As they bite into the grape, they, they, they sort of, you know, feel the juice hitting their mouth, and they remember the blood of Jesus shed for them. And then as they chew on the flesh of the grape, they thank Jesus for his body that was broken for them, for dying, for paying the price, the ultimate price for their salvation and rescue. Brother Andrew, many of you will know, perhaps having read the book God Smuggler, an absolutely amazing read. If you've never read it, come and see me. We love to send it for free to people because it is just an amazing story of risk and adventure with Jesus. He was the founder of Open Doors way back in 1955. He died last year, but um, his legacy lives on, really. And he went to a very remote location in Central Asia, a place where if you discover to be a Christian by your family or community, you'll probably be killed on the spot, such is the risk and danger in that part of the world. And this was an arduous journey. It was in a four by four. He was traveling in, you know, um, mountainous terrain, absolutely in the back of beyond. And finally, after hours and hours, he arrives at a, a village and there's this shack that he goes to. The windows are covered up with blankets and uh, the only light in this little shack, in this little room, is the light of a candle, maybe a glimpse of sunlight that are coming through the cracks and the blankets. And the primary purpose of this gathering that Brother Andrew and another co-worker from Open Doors went for was to encourage a group of Christians, 12 men and two women, and to baptize them and to take communion with them, to have this meal together. The meeting began with the group singing some psalms led by a former mullah, an Islamic religious leader. And he said, declared that he now wanted to be a mullah for Christ. You know, God is at work changing lives in the most dangerous places. As the meeting progressed, each one shared their testimony. And then Brother Andrew baptized them. And then they took communion together using grapes. In the weeks and months that followed that secret meeting, that followed that secret communion, nearly all of these men and women were martyred for following Jesus, paying the ultimate price for their faith in Christ. At the cross, at this meal, at this supper, believers like this remember the worth and wonder of following Jesus. They remember Jesus, his life and his love poured out for them. But also they remember the great hope of being a Christian, that there is, there is victory in the face of suffering. There is victory in the face of suffering. 
And as the lines of Isaac Watts' great hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, say, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And our brothers and sisters, even today, right now, are willing to pay the ultimate price for Christ because they know the wonder and the worth of following him. They remember him at this meal. In communion, we remember Jesus. And beautifully at this meal, in communion, we also meet with Jesus. We remember him, but we also encounter him. There is opportunity to have proximity and sweetness of relationship with Jesus because he is the one acquainted with grief, the man of sorrows, the lamb led to the slaughter, the God who is with us in our suffering, in our pain, and in persecution. And for that, that is such a deep encouragement to our brothers and sisters around the world. In preparing for this, I chatted to a friend of ours at Open Doors called Mushtaba. Mushtaba is from Iran. Iran is one of the most dangerous places in the world right now to be a Christian, just outside the top five. It's, it's number eight on our world watch list, the list ranking the most costly places to be a Christian. By his early 20s, he'd spent something like three years in prison for his faith, for running a secret house church in his homeland. He was often blindfolded, tortured, beaten, and, and spent many days in solitary confinement. He discovered that persecution strips you of everything but Jesus. Persecution strips you of everything but Jesus. And he said this to me. He said, most of us are defined by what we have, our relationships, the people in our lives, the things that we have, our possessions, titles, degrees, certificates. If suddenly all that is taken away, and this happened to me, what am I left with? Who am I without my father, my mother, without my phone, my guitar, my stuff? And one day, after a particularly intense period of solitary confinement, I was praying and I felt really, really low. I was crying and praying without thinking. I prayed, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Echoing Psalm 22. I suddenly paused. That prayer, it took me to the cross. It took me to Calvary. It took me to Jesus. I had this connection with Jesus that I can't really describe in that moment, I felt that God isn't distant, that he's connected to all my pains. It was a huge encouragement from him, that it was okay to feel broken, to feel lonely, to feel rejected, that he empathizes with me, with you. It's beautiful, isn't it? Jesus meets with us, and we meet with him when we think about the cross, when we think about this meal, and when we take the meal together as well. So we remember Jesus, and we meet with him when we take this supper together. Also, in this meal, we remember that we are one. We're one body. That this is a meal that is shared with others, that is shared with others. When we break bread and we share the wine, we remember that we're not alone. That in communion, we partake with the whole body of Christ, the global church. We live very hyper-individualized lives, don't we? And we as the church... You as Christ Church Winchester, we need to kick back against that mentality and uh, just stress that being a Christian, being part of the church, this faith that we have is a shared experience. We're family, we're brothers and sisters, and the, for the persecuted church, that's an absolute big deal. And when we remember the Lord's Supper, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a meal that we share after all, it's Jesus' death and resurrection that, that makes us family, isn't it? And it's, you know, we're then united in the most powerful way possible. So in this meal, we not only remember 
the price Jesus paid. We remember the price being paid right now around the world. Truth is, this meal reminds us that the body and blood of Jesus is still being battered, broken, and bleeding. The body of Jesus is still being battered, broken, and bleeding around the world today. In Acts 9, Jesus appears to Saul, Paul, on the way to Damascus. He's off to eliminate, eradicate the fledgling church there in Damascus in Syria. And Jesus, you know, encounters him in the most amazing way, stops him in his tracks as he's, as, as he's on his journey. And Jesus says, the audible voice of Jesus says these words, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. These words are still true today. Jesus feels the persecution of his body, his church, profoundly. The suffering of Jesus still continues. I love working for Open Doors. It is an incredible organization. I get to have a front row seat on what God is doing in so many places. I get to have a front row seat on brothers and sisters who are willing to follow Jesus, have amazing resilience and endurance, and teach me so much about walking with Jesus as well. And at Open Doors, we, we share stats, we, do, we share the research of what is happening on the ground in so many places. And one in seven Christians around the world share our faith but not our freedom, facing high or extreme levels of persecution for their faith. Put another way, that's 360 million Christians. The body and blood of Jesus is still being battered, broken, and bleeding as we speak. The World Watch List map is, is really helpful as a visual for us. It shows countries in red and orange. And these are the countries where the fire persecution is raging, where our brothers and sisters are willing to count the cost for following Christ, willing to follow the one who paid the ultimate price for them. But you know, behind every number is a name. Behind every story is a statistic. And I want to share one story very quickly with you today. I want to tell you about Rhoda, a mum of five from northern Nigeria. And I'd love you to pray for her. And maybe in a moment, we'll just pause very quickly and do that. Tomorrow morning, she'll be in a court hearing in northern Nigeria. She was accused of blasphemy by forwarding a WhatsApp message in the aftermath of the killing of a young 18-year-old girl called Deborah Samuel in northern Nigeria last May. Deborah Samuel was, was stoned and burnt by her classmates because she was a Christian, targeted for being a Christian. Rhoda forwarded this message condemning what had happened to Deborah Samuel. Others caught wind of it. And since last December, she has been held in custody, a mother of five. And tomorrow she will go into court and she potentially faces three years imprisonment if found guilty. We need to pray for, Deborah, uh, for Rhoda Jetal. And where's Jesus? Jesus is right there because he feels the pain of his body profoundly and deeply. Maybe just let's have a moment to pause. You can pray for Rhoda, for the judge to be lenient, for justice to be done. In this meal, we not only remember the price Jesus paid, we remember the price being paid around this world right now. And have you ever thought that when you take communion, you can actually maybe take it on behalf of others, others who can't, as an act of solidarity, 
This also hit me when I was preparing for this talk, actually. I was spending some time a couple of weeks back with a lady from North Korea, the most dangerous place on earth to be a Christian. Her name is Sang Hwa. And as a child, at the age of 12, she discovered her parents' secret Bible, and that set her off on a journey of discovery, of finding Jesus. And she was part of a secret church in North Korea. And do you know what she said? They, they couldn't actually celebrate communion. They couldn't celebrate communion because it was too risky. They had spies that were gathered amongst them, and they, they couldn't do it. So it made me think, actually, when we take communion, maybe we can take it in the sense of standing in solidarity on behalf of others, others who can't. Today, all over the world, the church will be gathering together in twos or threes, up to the thousands, in freedom and in persecution. And for our brothers and sisters around the world, partaking in communion or remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus reminds them that they are one body. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17 talks about us being one loaf, one bread, one loaf. And for them, the power of not being alone is, is vital, vital. And that's the vision of Open Doors, really, that our vision is that no Christian who is persecuted around the world should suffer alone. And so actually us standing with them, remembering them, praying with them as a church, you praying and supporting open doors to strengthen the persecuted church around the world matters so, so much. Because what are we? We're united together. We're family. We're one body, locally, nationally, globally, and supremely, eternally. Mushtaba, who I mentioned earlier, described to me his experience of breaking bread and sharing wine in prison. He said this, we took communion prison with any red juice that we could find. Find Maybe it was cherry juice or grape juice. We used crackers and biscuits because we didn't have any bread. And we'd just find a corner in the prison to, to gather together from time to time. And he said this, it was so special. It was so special. That sense of our oneness, our being family, being part of a bigger picture. In communion, he said, communion took us beyond our circumstances and reminded us that we're part of a bigger family, a heavenly family. It was very deep. It was very encouraging. In communion, in this meal, we remember that we're one. One body, one family. Ultimately, this meal, though, points us to a final meal, a glorious meal, far better than a Michelin star restaurant kind of meal. Jesus will one day gather his, his body, his family, his church from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what Revelation tells us, and that is a great hope for brothers and sisters around the world facing the most extreme persecution. And we will one day enjoy an eternally life-giving meal in his presence. For now... As we celebrate communion, as we partake in the Lord's Supper together, that is a taste of what is to come. It's a taste of what is to come. And the invitation is open. Jesus says to each one of us, come dine with me. Come dine with me. As we practice this new covenant meal, the Lord's Supper, may it stir within us hope for Jesus' return and thankfulness for who he is and what he's done. And we, may we also remember that his body is still battered, broken, and bleeding around the world today. Thank you.